I was just wondering if you could if you could tell me the corn story. <laughs> so I had the audacity to go to my grocery store during the summer while wearing shorts. I think it was even capri pants. They were longer than shorts. This is Ashley Shu. I'm so just standing there and I'm I'm picking out corn. You know, you know how you peel down and you look at all the corn to see if it's the right cob for you, and. I can see someone is like staring at me and coming towards me. So I pretend not to see them at all. And I'm just going to get very serious about my corn. Just wasting my time hoping this person will walk away. They don't. They sidle up to me and get onto my left side pretty, pretty cl- closer than I would like. And um, this woman, she, she goes and she sort of says it in a hushed and reverent voice. You're such an inspiration. And because I, I'm an ass, I say, I'm just picking out corn. She says, no, you're such an inspiration to be here like you are. And she like gestures to my body. At which point I repeat again, I'm just picking out corn. She wouldn't let it go. She tried to explain to me how I must be an inspiration to other people who are like me to be out like I am in public the way I am. <laughs> I I try not to be like super hostile because I don't really want to get into a fight in the grocery store, at least, you know, not over corn and inspiration. And, you know, eventually she said, oh, I'm a nurse, so I understand how it must be for you. And she understood like zero of how it must be for me. I'm still a fairly new leg amputee. It took me a long time to recover. So I still definitely have a limp. Um, I'm not a beautiful example of anyone on running legs, although I wouldn't want running legs because running's terrible. It was terrible when I had two legs. That's one of those, those stories, like I could be in a grocery store picking out corn and someone will come in hushed tones and tell me I'm an inspiration. But not everyone who is disabled sees their life as inspirational. Being framed that way makes people into objects. And really, I was just picking up corn. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today's episode is about disability, technology, and ableism. But before we continue... I do have a question about language. Simon Darcy, Professor of Social Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, says there are different ways people identify when it comes to disability. The UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability uses person-first language. Meaning they identify as a person with a disability, which is how Simon identifies. I align myself with person-first language. But others identify as disabled. So they'll use disabled person as a signifier that at this point in time in this society, uh, we are not to the point of being able to do what we want to do because of social, cultural, political environment in the same way that other groups use language and then reclaim it. In this episode, you'll hear both. Now, on with the show. 
Seeing disability as inspiration, Ashley says, is so common. If you're one of my friends, I've probably told you this story, particularly if you're one of my disabled friends, because sometimes we like to outdo each other with stories that are ridiculous of non-disabled people just being weird about things. And that you say you're sharing this story with your friends as if to outdo one another means that it happens all the time. It does. It does. I mean, I don't have the best story. Usually I'm outdone. But this lazy inspiration trope isn't the only damaging narrative about disability. In fact, there are a whole lot of them. One of the narratives is bitter cripples or villains, right? That disabled people are always malcontents. Disney, of course, this is full of it. From Captain Hook in Peter Pan to the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. There's also the idea of shameful sinners. Disabilities can be read as what a person deserves for sinning. We see this in uh, plays and books as well, that a disability indicates some sort of moral defect. I also think about the sort of hand-wringing there is over disabled parking and disabled permits and accessible housing and how that gets policed because the assumption is that that disabled people might not actually be disabled people. And if they're not disabled people, then they don't deserve whatever social safety net that they're occupying. There's a lot of really terrible history. Ashley believes these narratives persist because people and society continue to see disability as something to overcome, to be fixed. Well, I mean, we like redemptive stories, right? That, that's uh, <laughs> um, Everyone wants a feel-good story. But the fact is that a lot of these don't feel right to disabled people or for people who are working against ableism. Ableism, as Ashley calls it, is... The sauce we're all marinated in. It's the discrimination against disability, whether intentional or not. Ableism is all around us. In a lot of the assumptions about other people, in the structure set up, in the ways materials are designed, in the way infrastructure is designed, who gets to access a space. Ableism is part of almost every structure that we're part of. But ableism isn't just an action. It's also a belief that disabled people are the problem and that they're incompatible with the able-bodied world. Simon Darcy, Professor of Social Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, says because of this... There's a whole series of people without disability who speak for people with disability quite often. Able-bodied people hogging the conversation means those with lived experience of disability are excluded from telling their story. Where if we were talking about people from Indigenous backgrounds or men speaking for women in a gendered context, there'd be outrage. Ashley Shu says this paternalism is particularly clear when it comes to tech, namely technologies used by disabled people, something she's dubbed in her research techno-ableism. Yeah, so this term techno-ableism 
I'm just trying to point to a particular strain of ableism. And you're right, it's, it's, it's the one we've been talking about, that this ableism becomes embedded into our technologies for disability and in how that technology is framed. So I think about this in terms of sometimes prosthetic feet. There are a lot of prosthetic feet on the market. And it's not that every slight improvement or change to a prosthetic foot is going to change my life. But you wouldn't know that from the media narratives about prosthetic feet. It's like, oh, a new foot, this is going to be life-changing. Something doesn't have to be life-changing to be good. But the way in which it gets hyped, right? This is, this is going to be the thing that helps, that fixes, that reintegrates people, that empower disabled people. These narratives suggest that disabled people are inadequate without these technologies, which means that the, they're painting this picture of disabled people being unable to be empowered without the appropriate technology. That's a weird technological script to have in your life, right? To think that this might be an object that you need to be adequate or palatable to other people. I've been watching a whole bunch of videos with interviews of hand amputees, because why wouldn't you? And um, there's this one particular prosthetic arm, and they're interviewing this woman who uses the prosthesis. And so the, the tagline is, I feel liberated on, on, on the headline. But the woman's interview, you know, she's like, it helps me with some daily tasks. It's easier to tie my shoes. And then she mentions how it's a lot easier to ride her bike. And what she, the, the quote, I feel liberated is about riding a bike. And who doesn't feel liberated riding a bike, right? <laughs> like the quote was, you know, taken out of this thing. And yeah, the helper arm helped her ride a bike, right? Riding a bike with one hand is actually really, really hard um, or leaning in a particular way to use your residual limb would also be really difficult. So in some ways, this technology did help her feel liberated, but it wasn't this universalizing liberation in her life. It's when she used it for a particular task to ride a bicycle and who doesn't feel liberated that way. But the media like spin on it was like new prosthetic arm for women, colon, I feel liberated. And that's, that's not the message right? That's getting the story wrong in some fundamental way and not listening, <laughs> in fact, to the person who you're stealing this quote from to misframe the piece that you're giving. Um, and, and, you know, sort of the questions about how do you feel? And, you know, the woman, Nikki Ashwell, was just very chill about it. She's like, oh, it's nice. I can do it for these things. For a long time, I didn't wear an arm. I had tried to wear one as a child and I didn't like it. And then they gloss over that part completely. It's not that the technology is even bad in this case. In fact, it's filling this particular niche. But the story that you're telling about it is employing tropes that, that actually weren't part of the story at all. And it's reframing it and repackaging it, usually for a non-disabled audience. This technology as liberating narrative, Simon Darcy has encountered as well. I've got a spinal cord injury um, from long-standing injury. I use a power wheelchair, and um, you'll see a variety of stories where the language that's used in the communication is actually quite disempowering. So uh, the language of being wheelchair-bound, um, confined to a wheelchair, where from a disability perspective, if the, you know, the wheelchair is a mobility-liberating device that gets us to the starting line with social participation. But from my perspective, the, the chair's a tool. It's not, an, it's not the end process. 
It's the thing that allows me to carry out my job, um, get around the place, do the things that I like doing uh, within the confines of my impairment. Many of the technologies used by disabled people continue to be researched and designed by those who aren't disabled. In some cases, according to Josh Halstead, disability designer and advocate, disabled people aren't included at all, where their disabilities are simulated in the design process. So for instance, I can pretend that I'm blind, I can pretend that I'm a wheelchair user, I can pretend that I have one arm by tying it behind my back, right? This, this idea creates a narrative in the designer's mind that you actually don't have to hire a disabled person. That's part of the problem, and I'm, I'm really surprised how many companies will get behind this without even kind of thinking twice. Why would they simulate disability rather than work with a disabled person? Um, you know, there, when you have a, a deadline, that deadline moves quickly and you have a tight timeline and you have limited staff and then you as a leader, you have a limited budget, then it becomes kind of a, a cost-saving mechanism. But I think, it's, I think it's absolutely problematic. First of all, you can only simulate some of the disability experience. For instance, all three of my cousins have Crohn's. I mean, how do you, how do you simulate Crohn's? You know, um, and so what what that actually starts doing is it, if I can use this idea of like you're you're colonizing disability, to where you aren't getting an expansive view of what disability is, what counts for disability. You're also kind of excluding a lot of people in the disability community, and it still focuses on disability as a problem of the body and either the body needs to be cured or the body can be cured by the medicine or design or whatever, right? But it's not society's problem. Josh explains while some companies exclude disability altogether, there are some that do work with disabled people. But often they aren't paid or even credited for their involvement. As, as an example, I can turn to an article written by Liz Jackson. So Liz is a disability activist. She talks about OXO. So OXO is kind of this the pinnacle of universal design, this idea that we can design a product or a system that works for as many users as possible. Um, so OXO does appliances. And, and how that company came to be was you have Betsy. She has arthritis. She's in the backyard preparing dinner with children's scissors and those scissors don't fit her hand also don't meet her needs uh, with respect to grasp so her and her husband sam they go antiquing they go to a bunch of different kind of places to find appliances that have grip they end up finding not much and they get to design something that's utilitarian and works specifically for for betsy and betsy led that whole design process but if you were to go on, on the website for OXO, that whole story, the design origin story, actually gets attributed to Sam, the husband, basically saying that Betsy was in need of a design solution and it was Sam who kind of created this product to save the day, more or less. Praising technology. Simon Darcy says keeps the idea of disability as something to be fixed alive, where instead 
we should be looking at how the world around us is inaccessible. So without the chair, I'm more disabled. But there's all sorts of other things that socially disabled people who are chair users, uh, if they're not in place. So things like, you know, ramps and shore lifts and also street crossings with curb cuts. As long as the conversations around disability are hijacked by able-bodied folk, Simon believes society will continue to disable people, whether this be through technology, infrastructure, programs like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and namely, disability research. What's your opinion on how many able-bodied people work in disability research? This is a really interesting question, Jake. Uh, a really interesting question. I've been reasonably lucky to have had a fairly supportive environment and uh, I felt valued. However, a lot of people with disability that have had uh, interactions with academia have not found it supportive. You hear a lot in the HR environment about the culling of applications, um, that people tend to hire those people that look like them. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to disability, there's some real issues. I had a, a guy recently sitting where you're sitting uh, who is a terrifically experienced person in both the government and private sector um, who went through a situation where they were changing jobs. They were back on the market. He was getting a lot of phone calls. He's got a particular speech that you may pick up that uh, he has a form of disability and he wasn't getting phone backs after those phone calls to talk to him about coming into interview for positions. So, um, yeah, the research environment's a really difficult one for people with disability. And two, if it's the research environment when it comes to technology and disability, if it's run and led by able-bodied people, it's going to be tainted by ableism. Oh, for sure. How do we pull these ableist narratives apart? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, the narratives are deep. It's really important for us to understand that ableism is a thing, understanding that we have been fed a not-so-diverse unitary narrative of what disability is. But this idea of ableism, right, it's not, it's not just in the quote-unquote able-bodied population, and it's not necessarily always that against the disability community. Even disability advocates, I have arthrogryposis, and it affects both my right and my left arm, and even born with a disability, we have a lot of internalized ableism. I've made so many mistakes, even in, in the metaphors that I use, you know, as, as shameful as it is to say. I just remember a specific email exchange. Um, Alex is a wheelchair user, and she's a, she's a friend. I was talking to someone else on that email chain, and I said something like, oh, I'm locked to my chair. And simple things, like even though it seems so subtle, what I meant was that I, was, I had been sitting in my office chair all day, um, but I used the, the words locked to my chair, which is, is very ableist. At the time, like I was a CEO of a disability advocate group. 
and I, and I know it's not just me, like there are many people. So I think that actively trying to unpack that, if I say something like locked to a chair, questioning like, what did I actually mean by that? Um, because in that moment, number one, as a leader is humiliating, um, but also in a good way because I had become vulnerable and I noticed where I needed work. That also made me much more critical, right? If I didn't question why I said that, then I wouldn't really start questioning why I think being in a chair is something that would quote unquote bound me from other things. And this is where, how we get like this term wheelchair bound. So ableism is definitely prolific um, in, in lots of communities. And the more we can do to be cognizant of when we do it and then try to unpack when we do it, that's something that anyone could do anywhere. And that's going to automatically kind of push us toward hopefully the future that we're all looking for. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.